0: Hey, everybody. Absolutely stunning news over here this week. We have a video version of this week's episode available on our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash night. Go over there, sign up at any tier, and you'll have access to it. Once again, that's patreon.com slash night. Now, enjoy the show. So actually, I wanted to dive into something right away. You and I have only talked very briefly that one time I was over at your place to grab some gear, thanks to our Roach connection. So I lived there from 98 to 2004. Okay. And I was playing shows with my weird little jam bar band. Were you playing shows in San Diego at that that time? Yeah, I've
1: been playing in San Diego since 94, 93, 94.
0: Yeah, so you're like a super veteran of that scene. And I think we probably ran in different circles.
1: Right. I was going to say, it depends where you were playing and where you were.
0: Yeah, this is the level that this band, so the band was called Agave. They're still going, actually. I haven't been a part of it for many years now. But our main gig was at the Tiki House in PB. Do you remember this? It was like an old biker bar. Okay. The kind where you had to set up the stage around the pool table because the venue was too small.
1: Or your riser was the pool table.
0: <laughs> Which it was sometimes, for sure. Uh, it was a convenient stand for Miller Lite pictures. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there's like one, like, you know, four-channel PA for Lucky kind of stuff. Yeah. So that was like our monthly gig. But then we also did Winston's. We did oh, Blind yeah. Melons when it was Blind Melons. I know that exact scene, and I was not a part of that scene. <laughs> right. <laughs> like Dream Street.
1: Yep. Yeah, totally. <laughs> When I first started playing music, that was our aim. My high school band's like, we aimed for that. And it was like, oh, we got a gig at Dream Street. Awesome. <laughs> you know, or we're, we're playing at Winston's or we're playing at The Spirit. Do you remember The Spirit? No. Where was The Spirit? The Spirit turned into Brick by Brick, I think. Mm. Oh, okay. Yes. Yes, yes, so yes. So yes. before Brick by Brick, it was The Spirit. I even have a live recording of my band with Jim Roach. Oh, nice. Yes. From The Spirit.
0: You know, actually Blind Melons and Winston's did a lot of different type of stuff, especially Winston's was real jammy. So our band was like jam adjacent, mostly because we weren't quite good enough to be a real jam band. So when you did end up playing, I assume you played at the Casbah. Yeah. That was our goal. When we were there, we were like, oh man, I wish we were cool enough to get into the (laughs) Casbah. Like no matter how many times we emailed, we were not on their radar. It probably would not have fit in there anyway.
1: Well, besides the Casbah though, like Tim was also doing shows in various other rooms. And then there was a handful of other promoters. I mean, Soma did exist back then. Right. So I also played there a handful of times. You know, musically, I kind of feel like I hit a point where it turned into, this is my band, right? Yeah. One of my first bands that played out, I guess was called Steel Tree. And that was Mm -hmm. with Jim Roach. Eventually Gabe Serbian joined the band from The Locust when we met when we were 15. Jim Roach wasn't in the picture at that point. Gabe joined, we morphed into this trio called Jedi Mind Trick that I sang for. The relevance of this is because at that point we started playing places like warehouse shows and like Uh 14th and C was a place and it was literally at 14th and C right across from City College. Yep, it was a warehouse there that we played at. There was another place on Beach and A, I think it was. Union Beach is what it was called, and that was Chris Squire's warehouse. And we played there, and then we started playing. We played in Poway, played with Blink before they were Blink-182. Yeah. Like a ton. Gabe was really good friends with Tom and Mark back then. And then also Travis when they started. I think I still have the flyer somewhere. of It was a venue called the Soul Kitchen, actually, in East County. And then there was another venue called Cafe Chabalaba. The whole relevance of all of these venues are the underground scene and the scene that kind of started to emerge from San Diego that kind Mm -hmm. of then started to like marinate me and also blend me within the bigger picture so to speak. Like bands like Unwound and Godhead Silo if you took like the hardcore underground punk scene that was happening in San Diego um, not the terrible scene that was coming out of PB which is like swindle (laughs) they started like trying to like be the exploited and like have their like faux hawks and mohawks and the spikes and shit and we were just like who the fuck are these jokers you know (laughs) so if you took like our scene that was happening within san diego which that included like bands that i looked up to at that point where bands like swing kids and click katakitawi and Mm heroin antioch Arrow, second story window like all of these bands that were kind of a mix of like punk hardcore or just underground or just making like cool music with the like kind of DIY indie aesthetic. Yeah. So if you took that scene and kind of transplanted it around various cities in the States, these venues all kind of spoke to each other and like these Uh bands would uh all play in the same places. So when I was like 15, 16, I was playing these shows with these other bands and these other bands from San Diego. And then that's Mm -hmm. kind of when I started to meet kids that were like two years older than me, like they were living on their own already, but they were two years older.
0: And so these are basically kids that, rather than go to college or whatever, they were trying to make it as musicians, yeah.
1: Yeah, just trying to make it or just get by. A lot of them were in City College and kind of like supplementing that. And I did even for like three to six months or something like that. But at any rate, like these were the cool guys. Like these were the people I looked up to and were just (laughs) like, oh, these guys are so cool. I want to be them. And then I made friends with them. And then I started to play in Guy 1 and The Locust. And then that kind of then kind of exposed me into a bigger kind of terrain because then we started like going on tour this is like
0: 90s late 90s 96
1: yeah And then like that turned into like I did my first tour when I was in spring break on my senior year. And like my mom, my parents like let me hop in a van, the small van with a loft, one bench seat and like driver and passenger. So Uh like only seating for five, but we had three people constantly on the loft. So there's eight of us in this van and we drove (laughs) to Michigan and back and played shows all
0: along the way. Right now, I'm like, God, no. I mean, my worst nightmare is an environment like that. But when you're 18, you're like, yeah, okay seems good. 12 hours a day yeah
1: (laughs) i was 17 the drummer was actually this other guy who's kind of a part of the scene as well his name's mike cooper he was 15 at the time um and his parents let him go so it was nuts but at any rate like that tour opened up so many doors for me in, in the regard of like meeting people from other cities that weren't concerned with being let me take that back. They were concerned with being cool, but they were cool about being cool. Yeah. <laughs> they were like an open book more so. Like they like, you know, had emotions and they would, like, would speak freely and just like have really like strong beliefs and like back them. And it wasn't just like being a snob. I felt like our San Diego scene was a lot of that. Wouldn't really open up. Weren't very, very vulnerable and just kind of cool. Too cool for school.
0: And you're talking specifically about like the punk hardcore kind of scene? Yeah.
1: Maybe my like immediate circle and that might just be myself. Might have been my own insecurity of like that moment being with older kids and that kind of thing. But at any rate, like fast forwarding to that, like I did that and I toured Europe, and I did all of these things, and I was in these bands. I started this other band called The Crimson Curse, and that was like this punk band with a guy that I met on my first tour in Kalamazoo. His name was Christopher. He moved out to San Diego. After that summer of that tour, summer of 96, these two guys moved out. Christopher and I lived together, and then we started Tristeza. And Tristeza, I feel like, is the start of the music that I actually like stand behind, and it's actually me as a person and who I represent and what I continue to do. The rest was kind of like... Oh, I'm young. This is fun. I'm jumping off bass drums. I'm playing naked and I'm like, you know, like slicing my <laughs> fingers open and like, you know, all yeah. of this shit. There's fireworks and sparklers inside the Che Cafe. This is insane. You know, like,
0: why were they always trying to shut that place yeah. down? I <laughs> wonder. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and then it turned into like Tristezza. At that point, we started to get kind of our own little buzz around town playing the Casbah. And then throughout that time, I started Album Leaf too. And I was playing drums for a band called Go 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 Earhart. And then at that point, I started meeting a whole different kind of sect of people that were two to four years, even almost 10 years older than me, that I felt like had a lot of like broad knowledge of music and kind of exposed me to a lot of things that I still resonate with today.
0: Those people at the time were probably our age now when you met them, roughly? Oh, no, they were way younger. We were pretty old now. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) they're more like Jarek's age,
1: I'd say. Okay, got it. Yeah. So that kind of like started to peel the layers of the scene back
0: more and the venues that existed. Cracking scenes, especially, you know, kind of pre-internet, it was just like, how the fuck are we supposed to get in? I mean, you just hang out at the place enough and meet a couple people and eventually get in. You know, we spent a while trying to crack that like indie scene in San Diego with my bar band at the time. And it was just like, what are we supposed to do? Do here. Then I was late twenties, mid to late twenties, and I was at grad school because I was at UCSD for physics. And it's just like I don't have fucking time to hang out at the Casbah every night and talk to people, like you know. And unfortunately, unless you get real lucky, that's kind of what the formula is, right? You just gotta yeah. meet people and talk to them, and
1: you gotta mingle.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's my problem now, is I don't do any <laughs> mingling whatsoever.
0: <laughs> Same, actually, I went to a thing the other night. I think it's the first time I've been in an environment. It was like an album release party. And it was the first time I've been in a scene where I was like, oh my God, I don't know anyone here. Like literally, I know one guy, the guy whose album it was. And it was awesome. I'm like, oh my God, am I networking? Am am I meeting people? I was like, this is weird. I haven't done this in fucking years.
1: I actually did that on Sunday night, just two (laughs) nights ago. I went to a show, this label that I'm just obsessed with locally, And I was just like, I really want to go to the show. I I think I'm going to miss out if I don't go to this show. I went to the show, didn't know a single person, stood in the corner, watched it. When it was over, I left. And I was like, didn't talk to anybody, ordered a beer. And I was like, maybe that's not what I was supposed to do, but it was cool. I did my thing. I literally looked in, didn't know a single person. And
0: I felt like I was in the cool LA crew. And I was just like, oh, who are all all these people? Okay. All right. I haven't done this in years because I haven't been in the situation, but I just walked up to a couple of people. And I was like, hey, guys, I don't know anyone here. What's up? I'm Brian. Just start a conversation. That's great. And it's great. That's not my go to, but I'm happy to do it if I'm in a situation where I don't know anybody. But I was just like, what was the last time I was in a situation where it's like, well, it's either talk to no one or just go up and introduce yourself to somebody. Yeah. And it, it was a weird feeling. And also, I was the oldest person there. By a significant margin. I mean, I think everyone else there was pretty much 20 years younger. Speaking of intro, should we
2: introduce the show and our guest?
0: Oh, yeah, dude. Wow, Jarek, look at you. Can't take that producer hat off. (laughs) Everybody, this is Leighton Night with Brian Wecht. Now, on the other side, across from you today, we actually do not have Leighton Gray because she got her booster and it kind of knocked her out. So joining me today is our producer, Jarek Santano. Hi, Jarek. Hey,
2: how's it going? This is also (laughs) my first show that I booked a guest that's right so, mystery guest do you want to introduce yourself mr guest oh mr mystery <laughs> guest <laughs> Mr. <Mystery> guest <laughs>
0: mr guest
1: yeah <laughs> i am jimmy laval also known as the album leaf
0: yeah jerk you've been working with jimmy for uh what a couple years now yeah since yeah. i
2: moved here jimmy was my first person who hired me to do anything
0: oh before roach
2: i hooked up jarek with roach yeah
0: oh okay How did you guys meet? Was it just like a call-out, Jimmy, and Jarek, you responded, or what? San Diego, again. There's this
2: band, Vacuum, based in San Diego that I worked with when I was living there. And they opened for you at the Casbah, right? Yep. And then I was doing front-of-house and tech for them. We did a whole tour. We did a whole West Coast tour. Oh, sweet. And
1: then that's when I met Jarek. And then Jarek was just like, hey, I'm wanting to move to L.A., just looking for work. And I was like, just come up here, man. I'll give you your first, I could use some help right now. Just come up here. We'll figure it out. And then I started asking around, and I asked Jim, or Roach, as you call him. And he's like, oh, yeah, I could use something like that. I could use somebody like that. And then obviously, Jarek's got many talents. So he went above and beyond
2: the basics of what we were looking for. So it's been fantastic. I remember Jim telling me, he was like, dude, I had no idea who you were. I had no idea what you could do. I was like ready to fire you within the first week. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because he basically hired me on a whim without like knowing what I could do. All he had was like my resume.
0: So he just showed up and he was like, well, I don't know. I don't know about this guy.
2: We had like one meeting and then he was like, cool. So you want to come in like later this week? But he's ready to fire me if he had to. So, <laughs> Right.
0: But then you wowed him and you made yourself indispensable. <laughs> <laughs> As you could say.
2: Speaking of San Diego venues, Jimmy, I think you told me the story about Tim Mays, the guy who owns and runs and books Casbah, about the Nirvana story, about there was that band who said no to opening for Nirvana.
1: I know of the story, but I don't know the details, but I do know that there is a band that said no to opening at the Casbah. The Casbah now is like a 250, they'll squeeze up to 300 people uncomfortably into that space. Yeah. But before that, the Casbah was like 100 or 125 venue space. Same location? Two blocks north of where it is now. Got it. So it was still on Kettner. Net turned into Cava Lounge. Oh, yeah. I know where that place is. So anyways, that's where Nirvana played. And then they also played at Iguanas in Tijuana. And this is like, I think, I want to say in my mind that it was like a week before Nevermind came out or something like mm-hmm. that. But I know it was around that same era. And yeah, I guess there was a band that said no, maybe ego-wise or something like that. I'm not sure, but I don't know exactly the details or who the band was. But you never know. I don't know. Interpol opened for Tristeza, my old
0: band. Oh, really? Oh, that's cool. Yeah.
1: At this smallish venue in Boston.
0: Do you remember the venue? Middle East upstairs. So I lived right around the corner from there for like three years, yeah. Right. So, you know, upstairs, downstairs, et cetera.
1: So we played upstairs and Tristeza had been touring like relentlessly and we were doing really, really well. And so we were starting to sell out rooms of that size in our own right. And beforehand, they're like, oh, there's this band from New York that wants to join the bill. They'll take the support slot. You know, is that cool? We're like, yeah, of course. So the show sells out, which we had sold out the room before. And afterwards, their manager came up asking us for more money because the show sold out which is obviously not how contracts or any of those deals work. It's not up to us. It's the promoter's job, whatever. Right. And we're like, oh, yeah, cool, man. Like, we were psyched. Like, we got paid the most we ever got paid. Like, I think it was like $1,500 or something. We're like, oh, my God, this is crazy, you know, and gave Interpol $100 of our pay. And a week later, turn on the bright lights came out, and we all know what happened. So <laughs> <laughs> years and years and years later, and I was playing in a band with Sam from Interpol, and I kind of jokingly asked him for a hundred dollars back. Give <laughs> like, me that money back.
0: <laughs> Did he remember getting it?
1: Yeah, he remembers. Yeah, he remembers playing together the whole deal. Sam actually, he's got a hardcore past that goes back to his days in Florida. He's at least ten years older than like kind of the norm of the band. So he had kind of a musical past that preceded Interpol. And he was part of this kind of like Florida hardcore scene that like paid their dues, did all this traveling, touring, sleeping on floors and stuff like that. Because I know yeah. back then like with touring, like it was a lot about like paying dues because there was so many bands that were coming out and blowing up right away. yeah, And bands that didn't like quote unquote pay their dues, like with like relentless touring, sleeping on floors, being extremely uncomfortable cramming into a van with like, you know, only five seats and everybody else has got to be constantly up there. And, you know, that kind of thing was like,
0: quote unquote, paying your dues. I think about this all the time, like musically in no sense, have I paid my dues in in that way? (laughs) Like I was in, you know, like fucking little bands here and there. And then the jam bands in San Diego, but I was on this other academic kind of track. And while I was doing that Ninja Sex Party, you know, got popular and and was able to tour. Like we played small comedy clubs in New York for a few years, but we'd never had to do like the sleeping on floors tour thing.
1: I mean, I think it's relative to you as an individual because obviously for us at that point, we were 18, 19, 20-year-old kids, right. you know, working odd jobs, late 90s, you know, paying
0: $85 a month in rent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of allowed. And, like, I feel like the economy, obviously, is a different point. Oh, yeah. You just couldn't survive with that now. many people get weird about this kind of stuff. Yeah. Right? Like,
1: how many open mics did you do? Like, that kind of thing. Yeah, you didn't do your
0: bringer shows for, you know, five years, and you didn't earn this spot. Right. It's probably, like, an older person thing now, because so many people have blown up just online. Yeah. But sometimes I feel like when I'm talking to comedy people, especially, like, you know, stand-ups who are, let's say, over 50 or something like that, there's a bunch of, like, you didn't really – Do it the way you're supposed to do it. To which my, you know, immediate reaction is well, go fuck yourself. Like I, (laughs) (laughs) I think that's fair enough
1: too, because I feel like again, nowadays I think it's a different scenario. Back then, there was a lot of like, oh, we got a tour, we got a tour, we got a tour, and I do think that it still happens these days. However, these days the internet does exist, and paying your dues could look differently because the internet exists. Like paying your dues could be like building up a social
0: media following exactly. or, or a YouTube following or whatever. Yeah. YouTubers like, what's that? That's a new do. That's not been paid. When I try to explain to people why people started listening to my bands, it's like, well, it's really because of video games. And they're like, right. What? No, that's stupid. And I'm like, no, no, no. You kind you, <laughs> you of understand. like there's a whole YouTube gaming scene and my partner joined a popular channel and then people started paying attention Especially online now, there's this crazy cross-pollination between everything. And I think that's hard for people in more traditional media to to grok. And it doesn't make it less legitimate either.
2: Speaking of social media and blowing up via social media. Jimmy, can we talk about... My amazing social media presence? You want to talk about that? (laughs) My amazing social media presence? (laughs) And for maybe like people younger than Layton and I am who frequent TikTok, people might know you from TikTok, actually. It's come back. It's on Instagram now. I'm seeing it
1: all over the place again, and people are tagging me.
0: And so they're playing one of your songs? So they're playing one
1: of my songs. Somebody posted this video like, if you play this sound, okay, so there's offense number one. If you play this sound, (laughs) um, (laughs) your cat will do this or come to you or or whatever it is. Okay, so then they play the sound, the sound being my song. Basically, it starts with a drone, and then these opening notes come in. It's a synth tone. Mm And the cat then like perks up, looks at the person, presumably holding the phone, and walks over and starts to cuddle. I don't know when it started, but it eventually took off. So all of these duets started happening, and then more people starting their own yeah. and doing their own original posts. The original song is Window, right? Yes. Off of a record I released in 2004, my first record on Sub Pop. Obviously, this has happened in, what, 2019 or 2020, I think it was. So 16 years after the fact that this song kind of went viral. And this video and this whole thing went viral to post. And it's all great. Like, I think it's awesome. And it's really cool. However, not once does it mention the album, (laughs) Leaf. (laughs) You
0: know, do they pay out at all for using the song? You know,
1: I don't think so. I'm not sure how it works. And I'm sure that Sub Pop and my publisher, I'm sure all the parties involved are probably trying to find the angle or whatever it was. And I do know that there's like a huge gray area within usages on social media that is now starting to get kind of taken care of. But at any rate, it's cool. And so the thing is, is, which I'm grateful for, too, is that, like, then everybody started sending me this and saying, like, hey, do you know this is happening with your song? Or adding me. Like, oh, this is the album leaf. Or I love this song. It's the album leaf. Yeah. Oh, this is window. You know, whatever. Like, it's happening, kind of. And then on Instagram, which is a platform that I am on, because I'm not on TikTok, I started seeing myself being added two weeks ago again. So it's kind of surfacing again. Yeah. After it kind of came out, Rolling Stone did an article on it, called me, and had already done their scientific homework previous to speaking to me about the actual reason why a cat would respond to these tones mm. and like where it sits <laughs> in the microtone and like how it the frequency range hits their ears and their brain like all this shit and I was just like what this is, you know, they're like you probably didn't know this when you were writing the song. Or, dude, were you thinking about that? Were you
0: thinking about hitting? Well, of course, I was thinking about it. Yeah. Like, what, 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 what did so they fucking do? It think? only took
1: 16 years, but I really was like, I'm, I'm going to make a song for fucking cats, man. And, uh, you know, 16
0: years later, whoo. And, and I decided to really shrewdly market it by never mentioning cats even once. Or, right. you know, the album has nothing to do with cats whatsoever. But yes, of course, that's what I had in mind. Yeah, had in
1: mind. So that happened. And that's cool. But the sad part, obviously, is the non-mention of, yeah, you know, in the original post,
0: yeah. Dude, it drives me insane on social media, the non-attribution stuff where people just take something, probably because they saw someone else use it, right? but very few people bother to check, hey, who created this? Where did this come from? Yeah. It happens a lot with art, probably more than anything, like visual art. People just take some image from somewhere and don't credit the artist. If I can't attribute something, I basically just won't use it. Because even though it's a losing battle, I feel like I have to plant a flag and say, look, always, always, always credit people whose stuff you use. Because I get real mad when it doesn't happen to me.
1: Yeah. I don't care about many usages, even like songs that like have made me quote unquote a lot of money, for example. And somebody else, depending on their background, comes in and says, hey, I just want to like post this video, like my family trip or whatever it is, you know, and like, I don't have any money, but I just want your permission. And this could be a song that I've been paid, you know, I don't know, whatever amount of money to be used that has been substantial, but them coming and saying, oh yeah, and I'll give you credit. Like, it's like, oh, cool. I'm totally down to let my music be heard as opposed to put like, you know, extreme limitation on it. Yes. And it's a case-by-case basis. That's definitely clear.
0: For my stuff, I never track down people using it and do takedown notices. The only thing we will do takedowns for is people literally just reposting our stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I did a takedown for an NRA video that
1: tried to use one of my songs. Oh. I got on them. I was like, no, 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 take that. Oh. Good.
0: Yeah. Other thing is like, guys, because it's a pain in the ass, they don't reach out. But it's like, guys, come on. If you're going to use someone's music.
1: Yeah. There's been a handful of conservative usages of my music that I've had taken down. And I think it's because there was a PSA, I think that was Michelle Obama that used one of my songs and that kind of got some traction, you know, within their community.
2: It was like bad music kind of stuff. It was bad music. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Okay.
1: Which we approved too. They reached out, they asked for permission.
2: Back to first offense, Jimmy. One of my funny first offences <laughs> that defense. came along came along for you. I was watching Lovecraft Country and Window was opening up boom the episode that Window was featured on. And whoever did the captioning and whoever was in music soup was like, Leon Bridges this, et cetera, that and Window was just ambient music for the caption. Right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> for the captions.
2: Exactly. That sucks.
0: Totally. (laughs) Is that something that's in the hands of the music supervisor for that? Let's name names. Really get someone in trouble.
1: You know, I don't know. Like, I've done films, and I know that, like, the directors that I've worked with have something to do with the captions or maybe at least approving them, but like that's mm-hmm. more on like a smaller indie level. I wouldn't say indie, but just not like a massive, like not like HBO. Yeah, yeah. So who knows, like within HBO, who is in charge of subtitling?
0: I assume it's someone pretty far down the food chain who's actually doing the subtitles. And then maybe someone is quote unquote approving them, but probably just kind of glances yeah. at it and is like, yeah, fine. Okay. Whatever.
2: However, it should be in the cue sheet. So if they're going through that, it would be noted in the cue sheet. Speaking of more films and directors, et cetera, et cetera, Jimmy, you're composing a lot these days. And I have a question to ask. Yeah. What makes a signature sound when it comes to composing? I feel like there are a lot of when directors put in temp music, they're like, oh, we want this to be like Hans Zimmer. Or, you know, it's a lot of like Hans Zimmery shit. <laughs> what makes a composer like yourself, Ludwig Gorenson?
0: I just discovered he was the, I've been rewatching Community, and he did all the music for Community.
2: Really? Oh, I didn't know he did oh that.
0: Oh God.
1: Isn't that fucking crazy? He's genius. He's absolutely genius. Yeah.
0: And it's not like a style that I'm used to hearing him in either, you know? It's pretty chill. Yeah. So I was just like, are you kidding? Ludwig Göransson? Wow. I had that same reaction to
1: John Williams having
0: done Witches of Eastwick. Yes. It's like, really? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, every (laughs) once in a while, someone steps outside (laughs) their comfort zone, and you're like, another one that's like that for me, too, is Danny Elfman's back to school score, which fucking was real brassy and bouncy, and I love it. Midnight Run for him, too. And it's just not your typical Elfman stuff. Yeah. And it's always just like, whoa, this stuff is, who? What?
1: Whoa, cool. Right. Like, starting with Elfman, I mean, he's obviously has a signature sound. I don't think anyone can do that. Yeah. Like, there's just chord structures and intervals and melodics and melodies and all that stuff that he's just hitting that, like, yeah I don't think anyone can just wrap their head around.
0: Well, and it was crazy for him, too. I mean, obviously, he had a lot of background with Boingo and stuff like that. Yeah, but beforehand, didn't he have, like, a, a band called, like, the Citizens or... Well, he had the, the Mystic Knights of the Secret Society of the Oingo Boingo, right? Yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah. And then it turned into Oingo Boingo. That's right. I mean, that was a whole, like, performance art kind of... Thing with the you know non musical element, so he did some various stuff. But then I feel like Beetlejuice hits well, and Pee Wee's Big Adventure, which I think was his first yeah. like big film score. And you're just like, oh fuck, here we are. Totally. You know when that that first that main theme hits with the major seventh stuff going on, you're like, fuck, this you know I haven't heard anything like this. Totally that Elfman style from those '80s movies: Pee Wee, Beetlejuice, Batman. Oh, so good. Edward Scissorhands. Yeah, all of them. To jump off your question too, Jarek, I'm always curious of the Elfman stuff. The orchestration is a really, really big part of that sound. Yeah, and it's a very like romantic in the music sense, like you know, 19th century kind of Mahlerian, Straussian sort of orchestration stuff. Part of that signature sound, I think it's important to credit the orchestrator as much as the yes composer. And I believe I don't know exactly what the breakdown is, but I don't think he was the orchestrator. I think it was probably Steve Bartek or someone like that for those early scores.
1: Good call, because that is important. and It's important to note. And that falls under the hat of, like, Hans Zimmer, too, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I can say what I think, which I think is completely wrong, or I can't say what the truth is because I don't know. Mm. But to <laughs> me, like, I do think that, like, we, we're all aware that there are many people. I saw this video from Mark Mothersbaugh. Obviously, genius, too. Everything about it is incredible of what he does. But it did, like, cut to... Two guys you've never heard of, probably heard of them if you dig deep in IMDb or like stay around and watch the credits like five minutes in or whatever it is. But these two guys get all the MIDI files and they do the orchestration and do the sounds. Yeah. So Mark Mothersbaugh sits there, yes, writes it, writes the melodies, writes the chord structures, writes to this, writes to that. It is his song. It is his score. It is his, you know, but obviously someone else is in there acting on behalf of him, putting the sounds together. And I'm sure Mark's got a final say and all that kind of stuff too, but I mean, it doesn't discredit what Mark Mothersbaugh does in any way, but it does like not spotlight the people that are behind the scenes that do make a lot of the sonic choices, not necessarily creative, but it's like what you hear in result, you know?
0: Although I think Mothersbaugh is a good example of someone who I wouldn't say has a signature sound. Like, he writes in a lot of different styles. I'm constantly watching a show where I'm like, that's a Mark Mothersbaugh score? Whoa. Like, that guy is all over the map in a good way. I think he's amazing. I love his stuff. But he's so diverse that he doesn't have what I would call a signature sound. I'm not disagreeing with you at all, Jim. I mean, what you're saying is 100% right. right. You know, the sonic elements are crucial and are not usually credited as prominently. In fact, are never credited as prominently.
1: yeah. Normally, it falls under the, like, score producer,
0: like right. that hat or
1: something like yeah, that. Yeah, you yeah. know, it's just like, oh, that's so vague. Like, a producer is such a huge part of every single thing. And 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 oftentimes, people don't understand what a producer, like, what's it actually entail, right. you know? Yeah.
0: It's always interesting to me, too, when people do have the signature sound, the Elfman or – Whatever, the Hans Zimmer, the John Williams. By the way, another guy I love is Carter Burwell, who I think just crushes everything. He touches. I mean, that score for Fargo and all kind of all the Cohen stuff is just like one of my favorite things ever. But a lot of people, Elfman notably, they get this signature sound and then people start wanting them to write in that sound and it starts to sort of go off the rails Mm -hmm. a bit. There were some Elfman scores, you know, probably in the early 2000s where I was like, this does not have the same vibe. I mean, it like sonically is the same, but it feels like he's kind of running out of steam. Yeah. I mean, like anything that anyone does that becomes popular, people want more of that. And after a while, you're like, well... I can keep getting paid, but maybe I actually don't really want to do this specific thing anymore.
1: I did see a roundtable with him and other heavy hitters like Alexander Desplat and like maybe Hans Zimmer was there and like some other folk around the table. And he said, you know, every single time I get a film score, I don't know what I'm going to do and I'm just going to fail. And I think I'm just going to like plummet and it's just going to be the most terrible thing I've ever done. Yeah. And then he does what he does. Yeah. So, you know, I do feel like that level of like insecurity and not like confidence keeps you fresh, keeps you on your yeah. toes. You know what I mean?
0: I feel that 100% with everything I write. Yeah. I'm just like, I was talking about this recently on the podcast where I will listen to something I wrote even a few months ago and I'll be like, well, that was really good, but I'm never going to be able to do that again. Like, like I don't know how I did it. I don't know why I like that, but I'm kind of fucked now because, well,
1: you know, it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I sample so much because I feel like I have such a like a method of sound that I create in the mm-hmm. chains and the going from here to there, like starting from this source and going through this and going through that. And I'm just like, there's just all of that like stuff in the line that I think I'm like, I'm never going to be able to do that again. Yeah. But like it was just a <laughs> fluke that it just fell into it, you know?
0: Yeah.
2: What's the most random thing you've sampled for a score or album leaf song recently? I mean, there's always a
1: sample that I made of my son when he was, probably like eight months old. And it was actually Kate, my wife's idea. She often comes in and just like kicks me in the ass of my like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't, I'm, I'm <laughs> I don't But she'll come in and she just like has like these ideas or she just starts throwing shit at me. And, you know, it doesn't all stick or it doesn't all make sense, but it's always just enough. Of an inspiration as an umbrella to like push me in the right direction of just like trust yourself or do this or try something else like try something new and if what I'm trying which I think is new is actually something I've done it still like feels new to me in a way or whatever Mm -hmm. it is Mm -hmm. you know at any rate so she had the idea of like sampling our son and she just like put him in front of the microphone and he couldn't talk like the original sample is hilarious (laughs) it's like he's like.
0: "Eh, (laughs) <laughs>
1: like it's just like all of these things and there I think there's one that was like oh that one's actually a second long let me take that you know and so I took that and I just messed with it able to, in Ableton and the simpler like looped it here grabbed this like did the, the attack the loop like all of the stuff all of a sudden I pitch shifted it way down and all of a sudden turned into this actual tone which I was then able to just like oh there's something and then just like fine tune it tweak it more tune it and you know just turned it into this whole thing and yeah, it was like a really low kind of droney rumble tone that I used throughout this film called Spring back in 2014. So there's that. And there's also, there's this sound called a cuica, or this is drum called a cuica. Oh, yeah, yeah, the talking drum with the stick. Yeah. Exactly. So it has like a little thing in the middle. And you can like squeeze it. Brazilian, right? I think so. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. At any rate... My friend and collaborator, this guy named James McAllister, came over once, and we were just working on something, and he's like, oh, I got this quica. and he like, was like, what the hell is that? And it was just like, he put it up in front of the microphone. was a great sound, yeah. Yeah. So, I took that sound and actually turned it into this synth, and mm. the way that it was sampled, it has this like constant kind of like modulation happening within the tone, and... You know, not using the warp function in Simpler. The higher you go, it's faster, and the lower you go. So I've, like, used that as a bass a lot Mm -hmm. or as a mid-tone.
2: And it does not have any resemblance of a drum whatsoever. But, yeah, I mean, those things like that, they excite me, you know? One of my favorite things you sampled, Jimmy, was for Into the Dark, for the Maggie Q. Oh, right. The music box. The music box, yeah. Yeah. But you didn't really use the song from the music box. You like fucked it up more. Uh, yeah. And then I used the random, I don't know if you're sure if you're familiar with the OP1
1: synth. Mm-hmm. So there's an arpeggiation on the OP1. I think it's called the tabla or topla. Whatever it is, it's like you hit the notes that you want and then they start in the middle and they fall. And then you can move the wheel. Oh, that's cool. So there's no downbeat, right? It's not like a arpeggio. Right? It's just like it's just like totally all over the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I used that to trigger the slices in the music box, you know, sequence. Oh, that's cool. So it was all over the place, and then just like delayed it and did this and did the reverse them and like all you know. So then it just kind of like created this really eerie chime sound that was just super random and dark. And I found, you know, the specific notes that actually worked within it after the, you know, experimentation. And I took out the notes that weren't working and like just moved the triggers around then start to kind of fine tune the trigger sequence.
0: With the software you're using, I assume it's all just self-taught. Like you just kind of figured out what you needed to do when you needed to do it.
1: Ableton's like been a funny relationship for me because I started out with Album Leaf. I was loop based. So I was always looping. But I was looping with hardware pedals. Like an Akai Headrush was my main jam. I had mm-hmm. like three of them. I had one on my Rhodes. I had one on my guitar. I had one on my synths. Then it turned into the RC20. I could loop for longer because the Akai Headrush was like limited to like 11 seconds, which you know sounds like a long time, but in music, it's barely a bar or something at like 120
0: BPM, you know, or whatever. And you were putting those into what Pro Tools? No, this was just live performance.
1: You know, I would play all my parts when I was making records, but then when I would turn around to play them live. I would do a lot of the loops live myself mm-hmm. and you know, triggering and playing different yeah, yeah. instruments, etc. So I saw this artist in Iceland when I was recording in a safe place at Iceland Airwaves perform his name is mugi Sun, incredible artist, incredible records that he makes. He was live looping everything right in front of me and it was seamless. And it was like mm-hmm. mind-blowing. And then he just changes. And I was just like, What are you, how what the what is he doing? And before that I had heard of Ableton, but for some reason Ableton was first introduced to me in a way of like, here's a drum beat, and then use that beat repeat and fuck it up so you can sound like Apex Twin. Like here's an easy way to do that. <laughs> you know, like that that's kind of yeah. like how I felt like Ableton was first introduced to me as like a really cool. Easy way to manipulate audio, which it is. Yeah, yeah, and it is still and that's its strength. I feel like too, but at any rate, so then I met with Mugi because he was friends with Sigarost, and that was the community I was with. And the scene there is really, really small. And we had coffee, and he brought his laptop and he showed me Ableton, he showed me how he was using
0: it. This is when ish,
1: two thousand three. Yeah. So this is like Ableton version one or two, or uh, I don't know how early it was, Yeah, yeah. but at any rate, like I was like, oh, it's really cool. It's really cool. And I just like, could not wrap my head around it because I was so analog based. And I don't even know how to use MIDI DIN or just MIDI, really know how to use it until like 2014, 2015, like well into like making records. So at any rate, like he showed me and I was just like, man, I do not get it. Like, I just can't wrap my head around it. So like fast forward to 2011. I'm on tour with this band called Sound Tribe Sector 9, which is a Santa Cruz-based jam band scene, which kind of embraced Album for a hot minute, Try to kind of show us to the community, which was like jam band world. We played like Red Rocks with them. Oh, sweet. And this particular show was at the Boston Meriwether Pavilion. At any rate, my friend King Britt was there randomly. King Britt is a producer... DJ, uh, artist, composer, and he's also now a professor at UCSD, teaches Afrofuture's music history course, which is an incredible course. Awesome. He's from Philly, so he started out with like Digable Planets. He was a DJ. He had a a crew called like Silk 189, I think is what it was called, or Silk 100. It's Silk something. Mm -hmm. Apologies, King, if you hear this. Um, At any rate, (laughs) like I met him at another jam band festival called Camp Bisco that was booked by the Disco Biscuits I mean, just all of these names are, you know, pretty... They're speaking for themselves, really. (laughs) At any rate, I met King there through my friend Hash, who I used to play in Go, 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 Earhart with, who is now the bass player for Thievery Corporation. Oh, wow. And we all played on the same stage around the same time, and there was this fan trailer situation in the backstage area where there was this studio set up and you know the guys from thievery corporation would bring everybody in and, and i used to play drums with hash his name is ashish his nickname is hash so we go back there and we go back to like this little jam thing and i started playing drums and that's where i met king and then afterwards king's like oh you should come to my place in philly so I go down and I hang out with King and he and I kind of like get in the studio together and he works on Ableton and he's got the not monom and all that kind of stuff. And I was just like, whoa, what is going on? Still couldn't really wrap my head around it, but he was showing me all this stuff and I was like, it's starting to click a little bit more, a little bit more. This was going back to Boston and after that show. He's like, man, I see you looping the entire time. Like you just got to use Ableton, man. It'd be perfect for you. I was like, yeah, man, I know. I couldn't figure out how to feed live audio into Ableton and loop it in the way that I wanted and like trigger things. Mm -hmm. It just didn't make sense. Basically, the moral of this story is I've been surrounded and pushed with Ableton like for, you know, 10 years at this point. Um, Fast forward to making a record with Mark Kozlik, who's a singer songwriter, nothing to do with electronics in any way, shape, or form, plays guitar and sings. Like, that's what he does. We made this record and we're talking about doing shows and like how are we going to do shows because I'm, obviously I'm electronic and I made the record in Pro Tools. I was still programming beats and doing everything in Pro Tools like up until 2013, which is when I first started using Ableton. Cuz this is when it finally made sense to me was okay, I use these three synthesizers on this record. I'm not going to tour with these three full-size synthesizers. So, I was like, oh, I can sample. I met with Ableton, like the company. I went to their office here in Pasadena, Mm. and Cole kind of showed me around and showed me the push and showed me this and showed me all these things. And I was like, okay, okay, I'll try it. And I kind of went back, and then also this, I met this woman, her name is Miriam, who's been a long supporter and fan and friend of mine, was previously at this company called Artist Relations. She had since moved to Novation. And so she was like, "Hey, try this synth. Try the Launchpad. Try this um, Impulse." And so I'm getting all of this stuff thrown at me at once. Yeah, and I'm like, "Okay." And I'm trying to then starting to figure it out. All of a sudden, it clicked. I was like, "Oh, I can trigger this note that I just sampled with this keyboard via MIDI and USB." Whoa! <laughs> like that's crazy. And then oh, then I can put this sound in this section of the keyboard, and I can put this sound in this section of the keyboard, and I can put this sound in this section of the keyboard. Now I can play everything on one keyboard, and I can hit play, and there's my beat. You know, like everything just like all of a sudden, like, like mind blown. Awesome. And then I started diving into the YouTube videos, and then also that tour never happened with Mark Kozlik. But (laughs) the upside of that is that I discovered Ableton, and I'm forever changed. You know,
0: to this day, it is amazing this thing where. You talk to someone who just has the right tool for what you want to do, and without them, you wouldn't have found it. Is right. It is how so much cool stuff gets done. This happened all the time when I was a scientist. You just talk to someone who knows something, and you're like, you're telling them the thing you're working on, and they're like, "Hey, I know the answer to that." You're like, well, "You fucking know the answer to that? I've been yeah. thinking about that for ten years." You know, right? Did you ever work in Max? Like M-A-X, you know, the program?
1: I scratched the surface of Max, but only within presets that are already created. And those are two worlds that I still have not scratched the surface of. Max
0: and modular synthesizers. Actually, the only electronic music class I ever took was my first year of grad school in San Diego as a physicist. I was like, I'm taking some music classes. They had an electronic music class, and it was all Max programming. And it was fucking Cool.
1: When I took a music class, an electronic music class, it was the City College in 1996, it was working on like a Yamaha drum machine that is completely irrelevant now. And it was just like (laughs) learning how to program that.
0: (laughs) So, Max would have been way cooler. I mean, in college, they had like an electronic music room, which no one ever really used with all the patch cables and everything. And I remember when they first got like the digital patching, it was like, oh, what the fuck? This was like mid 90s. You know, we did a little bit with that because I was so young. I didn't really appreciate how much it easier it was. I mean, you could tell, OK, I'm not physically putting right. this thing from there into there. I'm just drawing a line on a screen. But the composition teacher was kind of running it was just like, guys, you don't fucking understand what a game changer this is. Like. Totally. For me, that was when Reason came out. Oh yeah. I don't yeah, know yeah. if you remember
1: reason. Like you could flip it around. You know, it did actually default patch, but you could come back and like actually move the patch.
0: Yeah. And that yeah. was the first
1: time I was like, oh whoa, there's a patch cable and that's what it does. That's insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We never did answer Jarek's question about composers, but yeah. We kind of did. I kind of feel like that's the umbrella and like that's what makes you stand out is your experimentation, I guess, and like the tones you create.
2: Right. I have an answer to my own question. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah. Of course.
2: For me, I feel like the composers that stick out are the people that they're almost like Foley artists in a sense, you know, they're not right. scoring to the scene. They're not playing like a happy melody for a happy scene. They're kind of using sounds or building the score throughout the film as like the script Gets more intense or, you know, dies down a little more. Yeah. Right. But they're playing into, like, the subtext with their sounds. Like Ludwig Goranson, for instance, the most recent movie he did with Christopher Nolan. Tenet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was talking about using palindromes in the sense that that's, like, a big theme of the movie. And he's, like, making his orchestral players play, like, in reverse and shit like that. Yeah,
0: totally. For me, the big theme of that movie was not understanding what the fuck is going on. Totally. Yeah.
1: (laughs) He also sampled a fire truck. For that as well there's a whole like segment on him
0: yeah oh that's fun i think you're totally right jared that kind of sound design stuff is so crucial to the overall signature sound yeah
1: this film that i just scored which it's premiering at sundance next bunch oh nice I did a lot of that. And it's also directors, like the directors also push for that. Like it's our fourth film together. So we have a lot of kind of like unsaid communication, but also a lot that's just said of things that they clearly want. You know, I kind of scored a couple like things that you see and then they can win with that more. And like, you know, you see these certain objects on screen and then like you hear this tone that kind of resonates throughout the entire film and stuff like that.
0: Yeah. Sweet. All right. So uh, let's move into segments. Our first segment. This is our pop culture or whatever recommendation thing. You get to talk about something you like. Could be anything, book, movie, music, video game. Just a thing that you have enjoyed recently. The segment is called What's Poppin'? There's a theme song that goes here in post. Boom. What's poppin'? What's poppin'? Jerk, what's poppin'?
2: What's poppin' for me is I recently got done watching this show called Love Life. Featuring Anna Kendrick.
0: It's
2: hmm. so a season one. And then the season two, I forget the actor's name, but he is in the good place.
0: William Jackson Harper. Yeah, he rules. Yes.
2: I just it was a great show. Kind of shows Anna Kendrick and William Jackson Harper going through different relationships. Yeah.
0: It's HBO. Is that right?
2: HBO. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Am I remembering that it's basically like they go through all their relationships until, like, you know, their long term relationship or whatever? It kind of follows them until they get to the person they end up with. Exactly. William Jackson Harper is awesome. So he's he's cheaty on The Good Place, the philosopher guy. First of all, that character is great, but he's also he's such a fun actor to watch. I really liked him a lot on that show. I've seen him in like bit parts here and there, but I'd be curious about seeing that. But I remember listening to someone tell me if you agree with this, saying that the Anna Kendrick one was like, that season was like, okay. And then the season two was like much, much better.
2: I mean, maybe it's just because I relate to the male
0: perspective. Yeah.
2: Maybe more, but I don't know. I thought they were both pretty good. Cool. Oh, I also started watching Curb. I'm starting from season one. Oh, Oh, wow.
0: Did I talk about this? I have recently, six months ago now, I also started watching, and I'd seen like isolated episodes. I started rewatching the whole thing, and now I'm on season 10. Which is the one that came out like later in life, right? After the hiatus? I think that's like seven or eight. Wow, they've gone on even further. Yeah. It's on season 11 is the one that is airing right
1: now, I believe. Okay. Mm.
0: Maybe it's even 12 now, I forget. Are you a Curb fan, Jimmy? I was never like
1: deep into it, but I was like here and there when it was happening, like when it first started. I mean, Jarek, I remember when you and I would be working together and I would like give you Curb references and you'd be like, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. I was like, gosh, (laughs) oh my God. It was like, there's just like the gap of like pop culture that we've existed in. Like to go back and watch certain shows, like and start from season one, like not having to ever seen it. There's a lot of those that I wish I could go back and just have completely fresh and experience that again. Yeah, You know, just watching it.
0: Curb was great. So I had watched maybe up to season three or something initially, but I hadn't seen anything with J.B. Smoove. And I knew he was on the show, but I hadn't seen any of those seasons. And when they introduce him and he's part of a larger family and then he's the one that like hangs around. Yeah. That guy fucking rule. He is so funny. Yeah. He really energizes that show in a way that it kind of needed. So it's fun to discover these like later iterations and then ends up just living with Larry and he and Larry live together and they hang out. Such a fun character.
1: It's endless the the things that they, like, come up with, too.
0: That show is fascinating to me because it is the most aggressively Jewish show on television. To the point where I'm like, these are the people I grew up with. I see all of Larry's friends, and I'm like, oh, that's, you know, all these guys that my dad used to hang out with. It is so rooted in Jewish culture. There's some pretty specific shit that I think, unless you're kind of around it, I bet is lost on a lot of people.
2: Yeah. Hell yeah. Brian, what's
0: popping with you, dude? What's popping for me? Occasionally, you know, I'll, I'll cruise around on the Criterion app and see if there's some, something I haven't watched that I feel like I should have. And I finally watched My Dinner with Andre for the first time. Have you guys ever seen this? Oh, what is that? No. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Okay. It's this uh kind of infamous film from 81 starring Wallace Shawn. He's Vizzini and the Princess Bride. He's the T-Rex in Toy Story. He's got a real, like, high-pitched voice. He sounds like he's this guy. It is a two-hour movie about two guys having dinner, and (laughs) they just sit there and eat dinner and talk for two hours. There's a lot of references to it in various things where it's the butt of a joke, where it's like, you know, in The Simpsons, Martin plays the My Dinner with Andre video game. In Waiting for Guffman, there's My Dinner with Andre action figures. Like, it shows up as this kind of reference in various things. And I never watched it because I was like, I don't want to fucking watch the movie, but two guys having dinner. So it turns out this movie completely rules and goes by in a flash and is super compelling and interesting conversations about. One of them is like a theater director that went off and had all these mystical sort of experiences. That's Andre Gregory. And then the other guy, Wallace Shawn, is a bit more, you know, is less mystical and a bit more humanistic, scientific, and kind of brings that viewpoint. It's this very interesting and very tightly scripted. It's not like a they just improvise this conversation. They wrote this thing and performed it. It's directed by Louis Mal, you know very famous French director. They sit in this fancy restaurant in New York for two hours and talk about art and life and death and everything, and it rules. It's so great. I can't believe I waited this long to watch it because I would happily watch it again. so yeah. <laughs> my dinner with Andre. yeah. Also, while Sean is a fascinating guy, he comes from like very elite artistically New York. His father was editor of The New Yorker. You know, he grew up in this rich, very cultured New York kind of environment. And he's an interesting his brother, actually, is a Alan Sean is an accomplished musician and scholar. He actually he did the score for the movie. But he has a book all about Schoenberg and, you know, how Schoenberg is more accessible than people will give him credit for and stuff like that. So they come from this very cool, interesting, uh, you know, art scene, art theater, music scene in, in New York.
2: Jimmy, what's popping with you, dog? What's popping most recently is Succession. Oh, still need to.
1: You haven't seen it, Jarek? I haven't seen it either. No, no, no. Oh, God, see again. Two people. Like, I (laughs) I envy to be in your position to go back and watch this show for the first time again. I try to take note of other things that are not dark because it seems to me that I only watch dark things and I get fed dark things. And I've watched dark things for so long that that's all we get fed, my wife and I both. Finding good comedy is really hard. Yeah, I think that that's why Succession really pops. It's this story about basically this... Filthy rich family that like runs a news network owns cruise license, owns theme parks, just like insanely filthy rich family. The patriarch of the family is in control. And then they have four kids, you know, they're all adults that are all basically three of them. One of them wants to be a presidential candidate and it's kind of like the joke of the entire series. He's kind of the butt end of all the jokes. And then the other three actually work for the company and the father's like failing health. You know, they're all kind of trying to be the one that like rises to power to take over his place and undermine each other and just like, you know, all of these different things. And obviously they're all fucked up individually as people. And they're like basically a disgusting, filthy, rich, shitty people that you somehow just root for. None of them are great. They're all assholes. They're all like terrible people. <laughs> and they're sidelined of other characters that are involved in the company. And to be honest, it kind of mirrors the Murdochs and Fox. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Mm-hmm. Like this last season kind of gets into what would very much look like Trump and presidential and the kind of the power that they have as a news network to be able to push the right kind of media in your favor and the right narrative and just like all of these different things. So, you know, then there's all these like acquisitions and like the media model of press is failing. So they're trying to pick up these different angles and remain relevant. And how do they do this and make these deals? These other companies involved that like come in and sideswipe and fuck you over and like take the deal. And anyhow, Music is incredible. It's a composer's name is Nicholas Bertel, who did Moonlight, is getting really famous for Succession, but also, you know, works closely with the director, Barry Jenkins. Oh, yeah. And he does all of his films. So at any rate, like the music is like great. We look forward to every week and it's HBO. So it's not all just thrown at you at once and you get to
0: wait for something. With a lot of those HBO shows, the music is almost always a standout.
2: That's what I was gonna say about Love Life. Love Life, as like seemingly corny as it is at face value, the music is very rich and very good. Yeah. Um, right. It's very well thought out. Even the music supervision down to the T is like beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I may destroy you. Yes. Which is another HBO series,
1: which the music on that was like an absolute game changer for me. Absolute like genre opening for me, just like led me down a path. I think Jarek, you came over once and I just had that playlist on the entire time. And you're like, dude, what is this? Yeah. There's not a composer on that show whatsoever. It's just all music supervision. Oh, nice. Which has also been kind of a trend, a light trend. It's not like super solid, but there has been shows that do solely music supervision, no composer.
0: I can't say I loved Westworld, but Raman Jawadi's scores on that. I mean, the theme, you know, the main credits theme is fucking fantastic. So good. And the music overall is just great. And that was one where I don't know if I had heard Raman's work before, but. Well, Game of Thrones Oh, it's the same composer. Okay, got it. Yeah,
1: yeah. Back on Westworld, like, I loved that show, but then basically it kind of went downhill.
0: Yeah, well, exactly. I loved the first
1: season. First season was just, like, incredible. It's just like, holy shit, what is this?
0: Second season, I was just like, what is happening? And then I started to watch the third season, and I was like, I don't remember anything. None of these characters mean anything to me anymore. And I tried to watch the third season, first episode, probably, like, three times. And then I was like, I give up. I can't handle this. yeah. I love Tanny Newton. Yeah, she rules. That's the thing is, I love all the actors on that show. Ed Harris is great. Oh, he's
1: so good. So good. Jeffrey Wright, yes, he's one of my favorite.
0: Honestly, one of the best actors of all time, I think. And he's one of these guys in, in his role, I think Bernard is a character on Westworld. Exactly. You just look at that dude and you're like, he just radiates intelligence and empathy. I love him. I think he's incredible. Yeah. But yeah, all the acting, Jimmy Simpson also, <laughs> Joe, totally. which is like great cast, but- far too complicated. Yeah. Before the reveal,
1: it was such a good show. You're just like, what
0: is this? This is insane. All right. We got to move on to our next, our final segment. Uh, The segment is called Peaches and Lemons. So the deal with this is you get one lemon, which is a kind of minor annoyance. It's your opportunity to complain about something that you feel like complaining about. Very minor. Oh, it's dangerous for me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then three peaches, which are three good things. Three things you're happy about. Can be big or small, as you need. Theme song goes right here. All right. I will go first. My lemon is that I have this giant box of kids books we're trying to give away and we can't like find anywhere that's accepting donations. And these are books our daughter has grown out of. And we decided, you know, pass them on to someone who will read them. And places are so swamped with donations right now. Like we called a bunch of stores and they're just like, no, not at the moment. We have too much. People cleaned out a lot of shit during the pandemic, which is great, but to the weird thing where it's like hard to give stuff away because places just can't deal with the amount of stuff they already have. I'm sure there's some place like like a goodwill or something. I have this problem,
1: same. Oh, I we have so much stuff. And then you want to give it to the right place for me, at least. I really want
0: this to go to somewhere like I don't want it to just like sit in a goodwill bin. I don't know exactly what happens with goodwill. I've heard mixed things about it. But I feel like a lot of that stuff, you're kind of handing it to them and saying, throw this out for me. Exactly. And it's like a flyer on the street. Yeah. Here, throw this away for me. That's the Mitch Hedberg, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I think if you give these books to a library, I'd love to give it to a library. Library is not accepting donations. Give it to, there's a children's book world on Pico, which is our favorite kids bookstore. They're not accepting donations. We try this giant box of awesome kids books, and I just don't know what to do with it. Anyway, that's my lemon. Jarek, what you got? What's your lemon?
2: My fucking lemon is that my car battery is low. So I think I need to go buy a new car battery. Fuck. Yesterday, I was having a hard time turning over. Like before I went to play tennis, it had a hard time turning over. I got stuck at the park yesterday, waiting for like 45 minutes for a tow guy to come and recharge my car. Really? Yeah. Okay, this is another like lemon in a lemon. Um, I feel like I should switch my insurance because Geico kind of sucks.
0: The company is owned by a talking lizard, dude. It's right, not I was going to say,
2: like, they, you, you drank
1: that Kool-Aid. You are the target market. Like, they got you. It's like them and Aflac. The extremely brilliant, like, marketing campaign is just like, here we are. We're, we're seeing the
2: actual result. Of. I got that insurance when I was, like, 21. I exactly, know I they doing. got you. Yeah. It's yeah. like, perfect.
0: You're like, what do I do? I don't know. It's insurance for people who never plan to use it. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so the other thing is like, I called them, they were like, you only get one tow and one charge, and I'm like, how many times a year do I get that, just once?
0: Yeah, one tow a year?
2: I guess so. Oh, fuck, that's stupid. So yeah, the big picture is my car battery is fucked up, I might need to go buy a new one, which sucks because it's always like, oh, I'm gonna buy this new piece of gear, and this piece of gear is fucking expensive. Yeah. yeah. And then it's always like car bullshit that comes I hate up. car bullshit. That's my lemon. Oh, annoying. (laughs) Jimmy. Uh, I'm like an insane
1: record collector. So I get packages, you know, like, I don't know, probably five to whatever a week at a time. I'll just say packages in general. (laughs) Okay, our doorway and our porch is not necessarily on the street, okay? So it's probably like maybe a good, I don't know, 25, 30 feet, like, Set back off of the street, but for some reason, the mail person, the mail carrier, I don't know why they can't just take the extra steps and go to the porch. But like they just drop it like right in the middle of our walkway, like maybe five steps down. It's not in the front. It's not in the back. It's not. It's like it's just this random place. And I sometimes watch from the window and (laughs) watch them walk up and just go like, just like drop. I'm like (laughs) ah. Like, every (laughs) single time, and, like, I don't know what the right play is. Do I go out and be like, hey, man, uh, you know, could you... Be a little more careful with my packages, or do I call,
0: or do I be ultra nice about it? I don't know what to do. Right, because, you know, this is not a high-paying job from a worker who's treated extremely well, so you want to have sympathy for that, like... It's not a high-paying job,
1: and I said it once, and he's like,
0: oh, it didn't say fragile, and I'm like,
1: I pick up the package, and I'm like, it says fragile, like, right there, clearly, and he's <laughs> like, oh, you know, I don't know. Anyways, last night, it's like, don't you think that people, like, know that rain's coming? Yeah. oh, no. So then, you could walk up a little bit more, just a little bit, just push it under the awning. They put it on the porch. They just didn't push it far enough. And so it came home and it was just like this drenched package. That sucks. Luckily, it's fine because we went to Disneyland yesterday, which if I really wanted to talk about a lemon, it's the fact that they got rid of their tram, which is ridiculous. Oh, dude. Because they got rid of their tram because of COVID, (laughs) yet they pack you like sardines into lines anyhow. So it's like... Come on.
0: They got rid of the open air tram, yes. which is outside. <laughs> yes. Why? It's, why? Why? It's so <laughs> and I'm dumb. I'm there
1: with like my five and eight-year-old. Like we're
0: there as a family. We're walking back and my 5 year old, like, I got to be carried. And I'm like, ah. And it's a half hour walk. Yes. It is a half hour walk, basically, from the parking lot to the front gate. It is so dumb that that thing is not back open. Anyway. Meanwhile, standing in line for Alice in Wonderland,
1: shoulder to shoulder.
0: It makes no sense.
1: None at all. Anyhow, so I don't know. I guess the lemon is the laziness of our postal
2: workers,
1: (laughs) (laughs) which really sounds terrible to complain about, actually, as a whole, because it's like they're overloaded and worked and, you know, anyhow.
0: (laughs) yeah, Cool. All right. Well, let's move on to the peaches, which are the good things. I'll do mine real quick. First peach for me is I needed to get a new laptop. My laptop was acting janky and it's like three, four years old. So I was like, okay, I'll get a new one. Went to look at the trade-in and it's always like 200 bucks. Yeah. Over $1,000. Over $1,000 for trade-in worth. Oh, really? Yeah. This has never happened to me before where I was like, basically like cut the price of the one I was buying in half. And I was like, how the, what the, how? Which one were you trading? It's a 15-inch MacBook Pro. What's the year? 2018. Oh. Uh, Post-USB-C. Yes, that's right. Still relevant. Still pretty relevant. But, you know, it's three three years old at this point. Yeah. I was expecting a couple hundred bucks at the most, four or five hundred. It was right. double my highest guess. And I was like, fuck, that's wow. awesome. Now, of course, Apple also loves to do the thing where you send it in. They're like, actually. Right. You know. <laughs> So yeah, we'll see what happens. But I was excited about that. Second peach is now that I have a fully vaccinated child, I took her to a movie. Nice. We went to see Encanto, the new Disney movie. Oh, cool! Because she was off school last Wednesday for teacher conferences, and we went to a twelve o'clock showing, and we we're the only people in the theater. Oh, so nice! Actually, didn't the vaccine didn't matter so much for that. But that's her first movie back in a couple of years, so she was very very excited. And it's a a good movie, too. Like, it's fun. I do feel like maybe Lin-Manuel Miranda doesn't need to write as many songs. You know, maybe he could just, like, step back a little bit and chill out. But, okay. I mean, it's not like it's bad music. I do think that maybe his profile is a little too high at the moment. Yes. He can leave some work for other people. It's worth seeing. I really liked it. It's got a great cast. You know, it has, like, six or seven, like, song songs. And... Oh, that's not bad. Three of them are really good, and the other ones are less good. I mean, draw your own conclusions, but right. we had a great time. My final peach is, Jarek, you're joining us today for this episode, which is very awesome, and I'm happy to have you.
1: Nice. Sick. waiting
0: due to her booster shot, you know, was out at the last minute, and I just texted Jarek to be like, hey, man, if you got time, we'd love to have you on, and you could do it. So I'm thrilled you're here.
2: Funny enough, I texted Jimmy, like, at 9.30 or, like— I know, and you're like, <laughs> I'm not going to be there, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: do you want to go next to me, or do you want me to go? Sure. Let's see. Because I could piggyback off of that peach that you just had, Brian, because— Yeah, do it. Now that we have two fully vaccinated children, we took them to Disneyland yesterday for yeah. the first time oh, yeah. in— you know, years. So I felt like that was a nice like celebration and just kind of the ease. We're still avid mask wearers, even like when it quote unquote doesn't make sense. You know, we're still the people that are outside with masks on. And our kids are so used to it that it doesn't even phase them because they wear them at school. But yeah, I would say having two fully vaccinated kids just as a whole is, is also just a peach for us and just our ease and, you know, being part of the solution.
0: They waited so long to approve that thing for kids. Yes. And I get it. I totally get it. Yes. They should have done it months ahead of time. I feel like, what the fuck do I know though? But I was just like, every day, I'm like, please, today, please, today, yeah. please approve this thing.
1: You could like have your kid be a part of the trials. Yes. And I do believe in it, but I did definitely gave me a little bit of pause just to be like, okay, let's just, you know, wait this out. I was like, you know, we knew that we would do it no matter what, like when the vaccine was approved, but, you know, just kind of like, eh, I don't know, you know, but yeah, we're definitely very thankful in that we went to a movie last week as well. Went to see the Eternals, which was also oh, nice. scored by Ramin Jawadi. That was a peach for me, just getting to get back into the world a bit with our kids Second piece for me, I'd say, yeah, I got a film going to Sundance, which is pretty exciting for me. That's awesome. Is that your first at Sundance? First at Sundance. I've had two premieres South by Southwest. I've had two premieres at the Toronto International Film Festival, and I've had one at Tribeca, and now I've got one at Sundance. So... I feel pretty solid about it's fantastic yeah so i guess that's a peach for me when i actually like step back and give myself a little bit of credit but yeah like i did a good job maybe you know i was a part of something that was great so yeah that is a definitely a huge peach for me it's like having a film at sundance and getting to go out and experience it actually in person this time as well being boosted and feeling pretty solid about that yeah one more peach is yeah being boosted my wife and i were able to go to mexico to Valle de Guadalupe to celebrate her birthday, the two of us, for three days, which is a region that was new to me. My in-laws actually live in Mexico, so we go to Mexico all the time, but they live kind of like deep in central Mexico. And this time we got to just like drive across the border, go to this region called Valle de Guadalupe, and really just the food was incredible, everything about it was incredible, our time together was incredible, our time alone. Uh, the wine was incredible. The space was incredible. It was just like really, really fantastic trip. And we're actually going back in a little over a week, actually, after Christmas with some friends and our kids this time. So oh, yeah. we'll be really excited about that. I love it.
0: Awesome. All right, Jarek, what you got?
2: All right. So first, Peach, is this jacket that I'm wearing. <laughs> it is based on this show called Nathan For You if you've ever seen this episode the episode is where he goes and makes a band
0: yes okay now i can see it yeah 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 yeah
2: Yeah, and it's the episode where he bases the band off of the fire alarm because he's trying to make it a musical instrument etc yeah yeah. anyways there's this twitter called men for fielder and they have this whole like merch shop and they printed these on there and under it there's a line from the show And it says, hunks, don't cry. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I've been waiting to get this jacket for a while. So I finally got it. I love it. My second peach was when I was at Costco recently grocery shopping, I needed to buy new coffee. And I was just going to cop out and buy like Starbucks whole beans or like the Jose ones. But then I like stumbled upon this like blue bag of coffee. And it was Kauai coffee. Nice. Kauai coffee. That's like from my island. And I asked like one of the workers, I was like, hey, like, where else can I find this in the store? He's like, oh, that's probably the last one. Oh, shit. Probably like a return. So somebody returned like a whole bean bag of Kauai coffee, which you can't find, I feel, in LA. Huh. It definitely was like returned because it's kind of like crumpled and shit. Yeah. So somebody returned it. And thankfully, I got that.
0: Is most coffee Big Island?
2: Yes. Most of it is Big Island, like the Kona. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Big Island region. With the exception of Kauai Coffee, which is like all the light blue bags, which Mm -hmm. you can find in Ralph's now, but they're like surcharged as fuck. And they're not whole bean, but they also come like with different flavors. This one was just like a general like medium roast. So... Another question is, do you typically
1: buy your coffee at Costco or you were there and you're like, I just need it. So bummer, maybe I'll just suck
2: it up and look for the gross stuff. Uh, Yeah. I typically buy my coffee at Costco, which is abhorrent um, (laughs) because it's all just very general coffee. You don't like
0: Kirkland light coffee?
2: (laughs) There's some solid Kirkland stuff.
0: You're not wrong.
2: Totally. But not much. (laughs) Yeah. I need to be smarter with my coffee decisions and buy better coffee, which is why I was excited when they had kawaii coffee that's what i'm saying yeah that's great yeah and my last peach is that i have work going on throughout winter like i'm busy nice i love it not busy that i can't like do other things but it's like i know what i have to do these next coming months which is quite nice and it's all producing and engineering stuff which i feel like producing comes Producing comes <laughs> along.
0: <laughs> I know that was good. That's the producer that just knocks his microphone around. Like, uh, yeah, no. That was great. Freaking Perfect
1: shit. timing on that. <laughs> We went almost two hours without the microphone being touched. and then he just <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, No,
0: dude, that's awesome.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: You know, that's what you get for like being awesome and building shit up and like Thanks. working on stuff and meeting people. Like we were talking about kind of the beginning. Yeah. That's what like, yeah. you know, just constantly being out there and doing stuff with people gets you, which is fantastic.
2: I'm excited. Not to say that I'm not busy to do any other work, anybody, right. but <laughs> that's right. I've got stuff in the calendar, which is nice. I love it. Hell yeah. Well, Jimmy, thanks for coming on, dude. So yeah, thank you. I guess I should plug
1: quickly that I do have shows coming up. Yes. The week after Sundance, I'm doing four shows in February. LA, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, and then going to Austin. So throughout the month of February.
0: All under Album Leaf.
1: All under Album Leaf. So those are my first kind of official shows back. So I'm pretty psyched on that. Excited. That rules. And the LA show looks really cool. What's that? Hollywood Forever? Yeah, at the Masonic. Oh, nice. The Masonic Lodge of the Hollywood Forever. I love that space. Love that room. Yeah. It's great.
0: Sweet. Anyhow,
2: but yeah,
1: thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, man. I really appreciate it. Where can
1: people
2: find you on socials, et cetera, et cetera? Everywhere of those places, any
1: social. I even do have a TikTok page. Just nothing populates it, but everything's at at the album leaf. Sick.
2: That's it.
0: Well, normally, Leighton would say our catchphrases at the end of the show, but Jarek, I'm going to throw to you today to say anything you want to end this show. It's your choice.
2: I'm going to say, happy early holidays. Stay funky, flirty, and fresh. <laughs> <laughs> and stay safe and orgasm hard. Great. Wow. Job. <laughs> yes. wow. we really... <laughs>
0: Really took it in a new direction at the last second.
2: This is now called Jarek Knight with Brian Wecht. Sorry. (laughs) All right, guys. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye.
0: Leighton Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Knight, on Instagram at Leighton underscore Night, or email us at LeightonKnight at gmail.com.